You can be turning in your Bibles or on your devices to Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 if you want to. We are wrapping up Jesus' Sermon on the Mount this morning. And earlier in the week, Keith had sent me a, a meme. He had texted it to me that said that because of time change, that preachers got to preach for an extra hour today. And I was, my original joke was going to be, I'm sure there's lots of other things you all would rather do with that extra hour uh, than that. But instead, my joke is, Keith took, took that extra hour during the announcements, <laughs> so now we're back on normal schedule. Um, but seriously, we are wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot that we could cover. I asked you um, to do some homework this past week, and I told you it wasn't the straight A's kind of homework. There's something way more important than straight A's this morning, and that if you have parts of the Sermon on the Mount that we haven't covered as much as you want to, verses you want to look at more, questions that we would try to do that this morning. And already, I think it was two weeks ago, I had a conversation uh, with Ken after the service. Last week, I had a conversation with Adam after the service, and then Phil had sent me an email this morning. So I've got three ideas already of some pieces that we can hit if if you forgot to do your homework and you're not ready. Uh, so I do have some stuff that we can cover, but we'll get into that in just a second if you're turned there. I wanted real quickly also to talk about the schedule coming up so that you can start reading through Colossians and praying um, and, and studying yourself and be ready for what God's going to say to us. And I'm, I'm going to write these out just so that you can see it in writing. You can write it down if you want to. Um, but my plan, jumping in next week, we're going to take you know that big section that Keith did a few weeks for us uh, Big Daddy Bird Keith, chewing up the whole big thing, and then we're going to spit it out in little pieces. Um, and so Colossians 1, 1 through 14 next week, and then the week after, uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 23, Colossians 1, 24 through 2, 5. Should get us through the first few sections. Now, if we get into one of those sections and it takes two weeks, that's fine. We'll just slow down there. Um, but we're going to break it up sort of like that. Now, the other thing um, affecting this just a smidge is I've got some stuff going on uh, with my family in Kentucky right now. I had an uncle on my mom's side who died this weekend um, from complications from open heart surgery. It was really unexpected. He, he was in his 70s, uh, but he was in great shape. He's run 101 marathons in his life. He's done 13 Ironmans, and they thought it was going to be a pretty simple procedure, and it just uh, didn't turn out that way. It was time for him to go home and be with Jesus. And so it looks like I'm going to drive up Thursday up and back to Lexington uh, for that funeral. And then on my dad's side, I have an uncle who's been battling brain and lung cancer for a while, and he's back in the hospital. And so if something happens unexpected along those lines, either one of the guys from the teaching team may jump in one week and take one of these sections, or if they're jumping in, they may feel led to go a different direction. But this is our tentative plan uh, for the first few weeks through Colossians. And, um, you know, any moment, and not just with a funeral, but any moment, God can interrupt our plans with his real plan, and we always want to be open to that and sensitive to that. And so that this weekend's just been a good reminder of that for me, how quickly um, God can change things and, and redirect us. And, and just so you know, since I've brought up Uncle Eddie this morning, uh, he was a pastor, um, loved Jesus, followed Jesus for as long as I've been alive, as long as I've known him. He just retired a few months ago, and so he pastored like literally almost till the day that he died. But the thing that I remember, I told you he ran marathons, the way that I remember him most, what most wasn't Pastor Eddie. It was Uncle Eddie who was fiercely competitive and so when I was 10 and we were playing pickup basketball, and if it was game-winning shot time, it didn't matter that I was 10, he was blocking my shot, and he was winning. And then when I was 12, and it was like I was, I was big enough to get the shot off, I, I found out that he had like really quick hands, I mean, like super fast. And so I could get the shot off, but he would always strip the ball. And so it was so frustrating that Uncle Eddie was always, and I had, he has a son, uh, the cousin that I stole the gum from that I told you all about, Luke, is my age. That's, that's Eddie's oldest son. And so we'd be playing, and, uh, and Uncle Eddie would always make sure that he won somehow. You know, he would strip the ball. Finally, when I was about 14, I got to where I could beat Uncle Eddie one-on-one. -on -one. 
And at the time, I thought it was because I had grown and I'd gotten better at basketball. Now, in my 40s, I realized that he was in his 40s then, and that may have had a whole lot more to it. It may have been his decline and not my ascent, because I didn't know this at the time. You can run marathons the rest of your life, clearly. He did that all the way into his 70s, because your slow twitch muscles never, ever go away, evidently. But in your 40s, every fast twitch muscle in your body stops working. And so now I question myself, like, did I actually ever get better than Uncle Eddie, or can he just not jump and move anymore? Because I can't jump and move anymore in my 40s. Um, but I also told you a while back, I guess he's just on my mind right now, that I ran one marathon in my life. You know, he ran 101. I ran one, and it's my first and last. Uh, there will not be another one. Um, but he ran with me, and he was this freak of nature, like endurance. You know, anybody that runs that many marathons anyway, and does Ironman competitions. He, another thing he did on his 40th birthday, he ran 40 miles. I don't know who celebrates that way. But then on his 50th birthday, he ran 50. And on his 60th birthday, he ran 60. Like, that's just who he was. And he would, but he would recover so fast. And so anyway, he was going to run this marathon with me. He was going to pace me because I it was like, I'm, I'm only running one. I want to break four hours. Well, he had run a marathon like just the weekend before, and nobody does that like normally. You don't run and then run again the next day. You rest forever. But he had pulled a calf muscle. And so I've got this guy 30 years older than me. I was 30 at the time. He was 60. And he got a strained calf, and the way he recovered was by slowing down and running my pace with me and pacing me. Like he ran a marathon at a slower pace to recover from his strained calf. That's how incredible he was about stuff like that. So that was Uncle Eddie. Um, and I do have good memories of his life and thankful for his faith in Jesus and that we can celebrate as a family that we know. Even as, especially Luke and Whitney, his children, grieve. They, they, even this week in the text and stuff, they grieve with hope, like not as those who have no hope but knowing where he is, knowing that he's with Jesus, and knowing that that's better by far when it's time for us to be there. So all that schedule that we're thinking about with Colossians. One other thing real quickly before I pray and we jump into Matthew chapter 5. I've been giving you updates um, about Josh and Selena Brown, their family, as they have transitioned as full-time career missionaries in Italy. Um, and I talked to Josh again yesterday, and it's going really well. Thank you for your prayers. For those of you that have been praying for them, the transition's going well. They're adjusting well. Um, they've been really encouraged by the ways that God is providing for them. And one barrier they have is that all of the worship services they attend right now are completely in Italian, and they don't speak much Italian yet. And so uh, one of the things that we're going to do, and just I hope this in a way encourages you for our continued connection with them, is that Josh and I are going to talk once a week, and we're going to text together the same way that we study in here, just so that they can have some English Bible study and teaching and, and being fed in that way um, personally. And so we'll be doing that. And if you'll pray for that, just that God would lead us to sections of the Bible that would be really helpful and encouraging to them right now as he's equipping them. And he did send us just a real short video clip just so you can see them and hear from them. He actually sent it like a week ago. So they have started language school now. A couple of things he says that's coming up, they've started. But I had to get it off of the, like the messaging app that they use and get it to Justin in an email format and then remember that I can't play audio through this thing. And so it took me a week, so it's my fault we're a week late. But real quickly, here's the Browns just greeting you from Italy. Hey, Friendship. Hi from the Browns, your IMB missionaries in Rome, Italy. We finally landed and arrived in our city. Uh, we're getting used to our culture here and we're starting language school very soon. We just want to thank you for all your love and prayer and support. We'll chat with you soon. Keep lifting us up. Uh, we're excited to share the hope and the love of Jesus here in our new home. Have a happy holiday season. Ciao. And they'll keep sending us some updates from time to time, and I'll share those with you. And then also, if you've gotten on uh, their newsletter mailing list, I think that's going to come out like once a month. And if you have that secure email address that was on the uh, magnets, you can contact them and encourage them that way. And so I'm just going to ask you to keep praying for them, keep encouraging them um, as as they're learning the language, making this transition with their whole family and seeking to make disciples and start churches in Italy the same way that we believe God's calling us to do that here and all over the world. That's our same focus right now, that we would study the Sermon on the Mount together and ask God to speak to us by his spirit and from his word and make disciples here this morning. And so I'm going to pray that for us and then we'll see what you've got and we'll jump in wherever God leads us. So will you pray with me right now? 
Father, thank you for this time right now. Thank you for the ways that you've already answered prayers that we've prayed even just the past few weeks for Josh and Selena and their family. Um, and we pray that you will continue to encourage them and lead them and equip them and, and provide for them and use them to make the gospel known and make disciples where you have called them in Italy at this time in their life. We ask that you would do that work right now in our hearts and in this church, that you would teach us by your spirit from your word as only you can. Open up the truth of your word to us and open us up to the truth of your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. What, would you, what truths would you like to share about God or applications, things that God said to your heart that you haven't got to share yet, or things that you want us to look at a little bit more before we move on from the Sermon on the Mount? And you know, I'll give you a little bit of time, but once I jump into the stuff that everybody else has already mentioned, Ken and Adam and Phil, it's dangerous. You never know if you get another chance after that. Yeah, so the question, both if you're listening online or if you can't hear in here, is this last section, and I mentioned that I think it may be the, the scariest section in the whole Bible if we really take Jesus seriously. But when you pick up here in verse 22 and he says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And then Jesus continues with it. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then he contrasts that in just a second with everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice. And I know we talked about it some last week, but uh, both the conversation Adam and I were having at the end of the service and Phil's email today, and now this very first question is all about this section. And so I figured we would spend some more time right here. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to roll this in and do it at the end with all those. If, and if that's all we do this morning, it's great. And if we need to take another week next week for more stuff you got on your mind, that's fine too. But real quickly, anything else that you all want to add? Because I just know once I jump into this, we're going to be here for a few minutes. So <laughs> anything else? Y'all are bashful this morning. And that's okay. No pressure. Like, you don't have to bring anything else up. Like I said, I know we've got stuff we can cover. I just want to make sure I'm giving you a chance here. All right, Dan, I was just getting ready to call it. And what do you got, Darren? Okay. Okay. All right. Let's do this then because here's the deal. I brought this for that section today. I brought this for that section today. I got up this morning and I was walking and praying and I actually came up with several illustrations that were running through my mind about that section and then Phil texted me afterwards and was like, like after I'd already been thinking through it, he's like, hey, I sent you an email, but I'm not sure if you'll see it this morning. And so I checked it, and it was about this section. So let, let's just let's focus on that today. I do want to back up to what Ken brought up um, a couple weeks ago after the service because we didn't, I didn't mention this in this section right here. Um, when Jesus gets into the ask and it will be given to you, chapter 7, starting in verse 7. So he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. 
knock and the door will be open to you. First of all, I think even in the fact that you see that he says it three different ways in a single verse, there's a lot of emphasis here and just repeated emphasis. And then he turns right around and in a sense repeats himself but makes a promise for everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, the door will be open. So now he's talked six times about you coming, asking, seeking, finding, asking, seeking, uh, knocking. And then with the illustration, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And so he, he's reasoning here, teaching from the lesser to the greater. Imperfect, sinful, even evil, wicked parents love their children enough to give good gifts to their children. Human parents who, you know, at best are imperfect and at worst can be evil and wicked. How much more will a perfectly loving, perfectly generous, perfectly gracious God who has all things, who loves his children as a heavenly father, give you the good things that you need when you ask him? And this isn't the only time that Jesus goes from the lesser to the greater when he's making this point about come and ask, pray. But what Ken pointed out last week or two weeks ago is that if you look at these words in you know, the New Testament was written in Greek, ask, seek, and knock, the, the verb tense is there, and it doesn't work well in English. We, just, we don't talk this way. It's hard to make it smooth but it does get lost just a smidge. The verb tenses there are an ongoing action. It's like ask and keep on asking, ask and ask and ask. It's like this continual present tense, always be asking. Seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. And it's like Jesus is really emphasizing, always be coming to your Father. Always be looking to him for what you need. Always be asking. Like he is your hope and he is your best hope. He's your greatest hope. You have reason to always be asking him and to never ever turn away from him and never look to another source and never look to yourself, but always be looking to him. And I think one of the things that I'm just so grateful for the way that, that Jesus teaches, the way that God preserves his word, is that even if you don't know Greek, you don't have to know Greek to get Jesus' point here. Because just what we looked at, hey, Three times, ask, seek, knock, and then everyone who asks, everyone who seeks, everyone who knocks, and then an illustration, like you already hear the emphasis he's putting on it, the, the significance of if you really know who God is and you really know who you are, this is how you will pray. You will pray continually. You will pray trusting that your Father loves you and that your Father has what you need and your Father is willing to give you what you need. And I mentioned that Jesus does a similar thing a couple other times when he talks about prayer. I don't have them on the screen, but if you want to put your finger in your Bible and turn over to Luke um, chapter 11, I believe is the right chapter, the first time Jesus does this. Yeah, Luke 11, the first time that Jesus starts to teach about prayer in the Gospel of Luke, the disciples have come to him and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And then we get the Lord's Prayer right after that. But then I want you to hear Luke 11 starting in verse 5. Jesus, just like here, he uses an illustration of Earthly fathers who aren't perfect, who are wicked, but still good, give good gifts, how much more will your heavenly Father do it for you? In this case, in Luke 11, Jesus said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, or some translations say persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks find, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. So you see Jesus making the same point with a different illustration there where he's saying, you know, go and be bold and persistent and knock and ask for what you need. And if, if a friend that you have annoyed in the middle of the night, you know, because he's just a person who's easily frustrated and who gets tired and wants to be asleep he doesn't really want to give it to you but he will because you were bold enough to do it how much more i hear the how much more there again how much more will your father in heaven who never gets tired 
who never runs out of energy. You're never interrupting him. You're never disturbing him. You're never asking for something from him that he's not willing to give in that sense. Like he's not annoyed when you show up. And if you would do this with a friend and the friend would respond even when they're annoyed, how much more will your Father in heaven who loves you hear and listen and answer when you... So ask. And like his whole point is, so ask. Seek. Knock. Because of who God is. Like, do you see again the way you pray, just like everything else in your life, the way you pray is grounded in knowing the truth of who God is. Do you know how much your Father loves you? Do you know how good He is? Do you know how generous He is? Do you know how much He has? Do you know that He's all-powerful? He's never tired. He's never rushed. He's never out of time. He's never out of resources. So ask, pray like God is God. Pray like your Father in heaven is your Father in heaven. And then Luke 18, he makes the exact same point again. Another parable, and, and this time Luke is like, hey, just in case when I did this in chapter 11, if you didn't get the point, I'll just tell you explicitly what the point is. So 18, verse 1, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So why does Jesus tell this parable? <laughs> so that you'll keep praying, you'll keep asking, you'll keep seeking. He's saying, don't get discouraged in your praying. Don't stop asking. Don't, don't look somewhere else. Your Father in heaven is the place to look. And this is the parable this time. And again, hear it for the third time, the lesser to the greater. You know, it was human fathers to heavenly father, annoyed friend at midnight to your great friend who loves you and is never tired. And then this one, Jesus said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you the truth, he will see that they get justice and quickly... However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And so Jesus says, you know, in this story, if even an unjust judge who doesn't care about this woman at all, because of her persistence, will eventually listen and do what she asks, how much more? Like, God is not like that unjust judge. Don't draw the wrong conclusion. How much more will God who is your heavenly Father, who loves you, who has everything you need, who isn't selfish and self-centered the way this unjust judge is, how much more when you are asking and you're persistent in your prayers, how much more will he hear and listen and answer? And so Jesus really clearly, you know, in all three of these sections, teaches a view of prayer that I think if we really believe it, it will change the way that we pray. And then this brings us back to we get to the end of chapter 7 here, and Jesus, like everyone who hears these words of mine, puts them into practice. Just one application of that is if you listen to Jesus, you'll pray the way Jesus says. If you're putting them into practice, it'll change the way you pray. You'll pray like God is this type of God. You'll pray like God is this type of Father. You'll pray like God has everything you need. You'll pray like God has the answers to everything you would ask for. And you'll keep coming. It's not like, hey, I'll try God, and if he does what I want, you know, like genie in the bottle, and I rub it, and, and the very first time it works, well, then maybe I'll trust him for a few more wishes. But if he doesn't come out of that bottle, I'm going to turn to something else. That's not what we're talking It's, I believe Jesus. I believe God is the answer, and I believe God's the only answer. I believe God's always the answer. And so I'm going to keep coming to God. And if he has me wait for a while, I'm going to trust that he's my loving Heavenly Father who has me wait for reasons that maybe I don't even understand, but I'm going to keep coming to him. That's one of the main things Jesus teaches here about prayer is that as much as anything that God is doing when you're praying, he's shaping your faith. He's strengthening your, he's disciplining you, like teaching you the discipline of constantly seeking him. You know, I didn't even intend this connection, but with Uncle Eddie, I told you he ran 101 marathons and 13 Ironmans, but the, in his obituary, his, uh, Luke and Whitney is kids had included that he actually ran, including training, over 100,000 miles in his life. 
Like, and if any of you have run any kind of race like that, but especially a marathon, you know you don't get up on Saturday morning and just go run a marathon, right? Has anybody ever tried that, by the way? I have not. I did that one time with a half marathon, and it was a huge mistake. Like, I hurt for weeks after that. I finished that race, but it was terrible. But, you know, the way that you run like that is that you train your body for a really, really long time. Like, you, you keep doing it over and over and over, and then when this thing comes, you're ready for that because of all the stuff you've done here. And there's going to be some times in your life where you're coming to God with this much faith and this much spiritual discipline. Like, you have learned to pray to this extent like a four-year-old toddler, and God's like, I'm going to teach you to keep praying. I'm going to develop this grace in you. I'm going to strengthen this discipline and faith in you. And one of the ways i got to do it is got to make you keep doing it over and over and over and over. <laughs> so that when this comes, this will be natural to you. And Jesus is telling you up front, it's not a pray one time thing and then you get what you want and you can go do your own thing. Because the point is never about that thing and it's never about you being able to do your own thing. The point is about you having a relationship with your father. Where, where your knee-jerk reaction gets reprogrammed. And the first thing you turn to isn't yourself. And the first thing you turn to isn't whatever solution the world offers. The first thing you turn to is your father. And the way that you learn that is by learning it over and over and over and over and over every moment of your life, every day of your life. And so God gives you these things where you have to keep turning to him and keep coming to him because the whole goal is that you'll learn to turn to him and come to him that you will know him and rely on him. And, and so see in all of this, both Jesus saying, if you, if you hear my words and put them into practice, if you really believe what I say about who God is, it'll change the way you pray. And also, if you hear my words and put them into practice, you're going to know that the real goal is that you will know your Father that way, that you will have that type of relationship with Him, that He will be your first resort and not your last resort. It's not, I'll try everything I can, and if that doesn't work, I guess I've got to pray. No, it's like, I'll pray before anything, because praying is the most important thing I can do. You know, and we even betray ourselves with our language sometimes, because it would be like, well, I don't know what else to do, but I guess I can pray for them. You know, I'm sorry I can't do that, but can I pray for you? It's like, no, that, that is the best thing you can do. Like, what God can do is always better than what you can do, both for you and for whoever else it is. And so, pray like you believe who your heavenly father is. Pray like you believe what Jesus says right here. Let his words shape your heart and your mind and change your life and change the way you pray because they're changing your relationship with God. So that was Ken's section. Now, this other section that everybody's asking about. Um, and I'm going to, I'll try my best to do it justice in the next 15 minutes. And then just so you can start focusing your heart in this direction, we're going to take the Lord's Supper after that. We'll invite the kids to come in, and, and we'll take the Lord's Supper together, um, and we'll worship. And so uh, I hope that all of this can both be spiritually helpful with this section of Scripture, but also pointing us back to Jesus as we prepare to worship through the Lord's Supper. Um, The first thing I would say when we get to the end of the sermon, which is where we are, when Jesus gives this warning, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these spectacular religious spiritual things for you? And I'll say, I never knew you. When he gives us that warning, and then he says, therefore, hear these words of mine and put them into practice. That is building your life on the rock on this foundation of rock. But if you don't put my words into practice, it's like you're building your life on sand. When we get there, remember that's at the end of everything else he has said. And so some of you have been here with us for most of those weeks, and I just want to remind you of the whole sermon. For those of you that haven't, I would encourage you, go back and read the whole thing. And, and you're more than welcome to go back on the website or on the YouTube. With the, we, put, we post the, live, the recording of the live feed on YouTube and then the sermons on the website. And listen to some of those to get better context. But what we've emphasized is that Jesus starts out, and I'm going to scroll up as fast as I can here to this verse that we've gone back to a lot in Matthew 5. And he's teaching about his kingdom. And he makes this really huge claim. Right here. 
For I tell you that your righteousness, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were the most religious people that you can think of. They followed the rules better. They, they did what everybody thought they were supposed to do. On the outside, it looked like if anybody is righteous enough for God to accept them, it would be the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And Jesus says, think of the most righteous people you know. Number one, they aren't good enough for my kingdom. This is a, Jesus is setting the bar so high that nobody can get in on their own merits. The most, the, the, the highest level of human righteousness you can imagine is not enough for Jesus' kingdom, which would be extremely shocking for anybody to hear. Like if, if there was a way that I could really translate it for you today, you know, it, it, whoever you look at, whether it's pastors or missionaries or some author, whoever it is that you think if anybody's getting in, it's them. And you're like, hey, everything that they do, all the good things you see on the outside, it is not enough. They don't measure up. If they're measured by what they've done and what you can see, they will not get into God's kingdom. Like, that's what he's saying right here. And then, though, he explains why. Like, it's not just this one verse that he throws out there. And instead of scrolling a lot, if you want to flip there with me, you can, but I'll just tell you where I'm reading um, so that you don't have to get vertigo while I scroll the whole Sermon on the Mount on the screen. So the very next thing that he says, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And so he says, here's the first thing I mean when I say the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, their righteousness isn't enough. Their righteousness is an external righteousness that follows the rules. But it doesn't necessarily change their hearts. They may never ever murder, but there's still the sin of anger that lives in their hearts. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, what's in your heart is even more significant than what you do. What you do is significant, but what you do always grows out of your heart. Right? And you may be able to hide externally what's really going on internally. And Jesus says, I want your heart you have to be changed on the inside to get into my kingdom. And so then the rest of chapter 5, he gives example after example where he quotes laws from the Old Testament. And he's like, hey, you've heard that it was said, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And he's not saying those laws are wrong, but he's saying you cannot do any of those and your heart still isn't good enough for my kingdom. So that's the first way he explains what he means. Then in chapter 6, he starts and he reverses it. He did all the don't do's in chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, he says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness. So now here's the good things you do. Not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So now it's, you can not do any of the bad stuff and your heart still be rotten. And now you could do all the good stuff, but your whole motivation is that people will see you and praise you and it's all about you and your acts of righteousness are about you and not about God. And that's the root of all sin. When you put yourself at the center instead of God, when you put yourself in the place of God, when your life's about you and not about God, he says, so don't do, don't do your good stuff that way. And then, so when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues on the street corners. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. And so now he takes these righteous people, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and all these public things that they were doing that look good. You know, we did the don't do in the end of five. Now in six, it's the give, fast, pray. He's like, but you look at your religious leaders, they give and they fast and they pray so that people will see them and praise them. So all their good stuff, all their righteous stuff is actually about them. So their righteous acts are sinful. Their righteous acts are self-centered and are glorifying them instead of glorifying God. And so Jesus is like, you cannot do any of the bad stuff and your heart still be rotten. You can do all the good stuff and your heart still be selfish and self-centered and rotten. And none of that righteousness is good enough for my kingdom. There has to be a complete change in who you are. And we could walk through the entire sermon, and he keeps warning about the difference between external religious human righteousness that is only on the outside versus this 
true righteousness of Jesus that has to penetrate to our hearts and change who we are. Like that's the contrast. But when we get to the very end here, in this really hard section, like keep that context in mind. I am going to scroll this one time here on you. When Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you hear right here? So again, something that they can do, like, Lord, Lord, and they hear everybody, everybody hears them saying it. It sounds like they're doing the right thing. But he's saying, just like you could not do all this stuff and your heart not be right, and you could do all this stuff and your heart not be right, you can say this and your heart not be right. But we know what that type of hypocrisy is, that type of religious hypocrisy where we say this with our mouth, but we don't really mean it in our hearts. It really doesn't change who we are. And so it's really the same warning he's been giving all along. External human righteousness doesn't get you, whether it's what you do or what you say. Many will say to me on that day, and he combines them right here, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And so he's saying, they're going to point to all the stuff they did and say, wasn't my good stuff good enough? And they're going to say with their mouth, Lord, Lord, like this is what, this is what we say about you. And Jesus is going to say, but has your heart been changed by a relationship with me? Like, do you know me? Are you connected by faith to me personally? That's all packed into that. I never knew you because we see him say it everywhere else. So then when he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, like what he's really saying in reference to the whole sermon is, have you heard me say that you can't do this on your own? That what you would offer me, even your very best works, aren't good enough for my kingdom? And do you believe me? Like, will you stop trusting in yourself? Will you stop thinking that you can be good enough? Will you stop trying harder to prove that you somehow deserve this, trying to earn it? Will you give yourself up? And will you know that only my righteousness can save you? Only my righteousness can be good enough for you. Will you trust me instead of yourself? Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and dies to themselves and puts their faith in me instead... Therefore, everyone hears these words of mine and doesn't point to what they've done and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I, didn't I, didn't I? But instead, everyone hears these words of mine and points to Jesus and says, no, Jesus did. Jesus did this. Jesus rescued me. Jesus saved me. Jesus satisfied the Father's wrath. Jesus satisfied the Father's righteous requirements. Jesus covered me. Jesus forgave me. Jesus cleansed me. Jesus accepted me. I'll point to Jesus and not myself. And I would say, like, just in the broad, sweeping way, that's how you apply this last section and build your life on the foundation that's the rock. Are you trusting Jesus? You build your life on Jesus, he will support you. He will be stable. He will hold you up. You build your life on yourself, your effort. You even build your life on your attempt to live out what he says in this sermon, and it is sinking sand. You will not be able to hold yourself up. It is Jesus and Jesus alone, Jesus alone forever. We said that last week. Nothing else can be him. So that's the first thing I would say here. Now, as Adam and I talked, he talked about the fact that you know, when I said this was really scary, and it is scary, because you realize everything, like, everything I do externally, it could be fake. It could be pretend. And it doesn't matter what anybody, like, it doesn't matter if you all think it's real when I say it or when I do it, because you can't see my heart. Like, at the end of the day, there's this place where God alone sees my heart, and either my heart trusts him and is desperate for him, and my heart has turned to him and is relying on him and not myself, or... I am in some way trusting myself and not Jesus, relying on myself. And so the reason I said this is scary is because it just reminds us we can show up and do all the right things and we can say all the right things and maybe not really be trusting Jesus. Now, one of the things that Adam was pointing out last week um, as we were talking after the service was that this isn't necessarily condemnation for us as if Jesus is saying, so you don't have enough faith, you haven't trusted me enough. And in the context of the sermon, I don't think that's the tone. This is a warning and a gracious warning, a loving warning from Jesus where he's like, I've warned you the whole sermon that the religious leaders, their righteousness, that type of righteousness isn't enough. 
And now I'm warning you, don't be like that. Don't, don't hear my sermon and then try all the more to live up to it like they do. Because I'm telling you, it won't be enough. And so it is humbling. Right? The two responses to the gospel always. Now, the gospel is humbling in the sense that it breaks us, that Jesus comes and says, hey, your righteousness isn't enough. And for those of you that think you can get there on your own, you can't. And you need to know that. You have to hear that. Jesus has to break you of self-reliance to bring you to faith in him. So it's humbling in that sense. But then also, there is a hope that comes from it. In the sense of, yeah, yours isn't enough, but his is. The reason he breaks you of trusting in yourself is so that you will trust in him. And so suddenly, there is hope. You think about when people hear this and the religious leader's righteousness isn't enough. On one hand, that's really, really humbling. If theirs isn't enough, mine isn't enough. But also then Jesus says, but anybody who builds his life on the rock, it, it, I can support him. I can save him. Right? I can hold him up. And so suddenly it's like, well, I don't have to be like the religious leaders to get, get in. It, hope isn't lost for me. Even if I don't think I measure up by human standards, there's another standard. And Jesus says, he is the standard and he can handle it. He is enough. And that I have the type of father when I come to him and I tell him what I need, he's going to give it to me. I can't live up to your kingdom. I need Jesus to rescue me. And he's like, you asked for that and my father loves to give that to you. When you mourn and you're poor in spirit and you admit that you're starved for righteousness, I will fill you up. Like that is the context of the whole sermon. And so in the same way that it's humbling and it breaks us of pride and self-righteousness, it's also hopeful. And it says, even though you can't measure up, God's not asking you to measure up on your own. God has promised that Jesus measures up for you, and he's trying to draw you to faith in him, to turn your attention to him in that sense. And then, I know that I say that all the time, and, it, and one of the ways that we mishear it sometimes is that when we say, Jesus does this and not you, and you rely on him, and you trust him. It, one of the objections, and at the end of the day, this is the gospel, and I want you to believe it. And so if there's an objection that keeps getting in the way, I want to try to address it. And one of the objections that you hear people say, and they'll say it with force a lot of times, be, well, don't I have to do anything? Well, what about what I have to do? Shouldn't we tell people what they have to do? <laughs> and listen, in this sense, you're right, that there's all sorts of stuff in the Bible, even in the New Testament, that we're supposed to do. But there's all sorts of calls for us to be holy and to live a certain type of life and, and to obey God and follow God in this way. The problem is when you can grab a part of the Bible and rip it out of context and misinterpret it in a way that it makes you miss the whole Bible, which, by the way, when Eric took us through Matthew 4 just a few weeks ago, that's exactly what Satan does with the part of a psalm when he's trying to deceive Jesus. Like we know it's possible to quote the Bible and be completely wrong if you quote the Bible out of context. Satan does it in Matthew 4. And so, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff about our behavior and what we're supposed to do, and we are supposed to obey God. But in the context of who God is, who Jesus is, and what this gospel is that he's revealed, and so I've tried to think of these illustrations here. And just stick with them. I'm going to go fast with them, and then we're going to wrap up and take the Lord's Supper. It's like, imagine, if we're saying the kingdom of God, like getting into the kingdom of God, and Jesus were to say to you, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you have to get to the top of the Empire State Building. And so you and I are standing at the bottom, and there's these flights of stairs, 100 flights of stairs. And I'm like, well, I better get started. Shoo, mamas. And you know, I get to like 48, and I'm cramping up, and I, I was like, I'm never going to make it. And you walk over, and you push a button on the elevator. Okay, first of all, I tried really hard, right? And I was trying to get to where I was supposed to get. In, in, in my illustration there, I can't make it. You didn't do what I did, but you still did something. What did you do? You trusted the elevator to get you there, right? Like in both cases, the point, you got to get there. Am I going to get there by my own effort and strength, or is the power of something else going to get me there? You do have to get there. But how you get there is a huge difference because here's the other thing that happens. Imagine that I could climb those steps by myself and I got to the top and, I, and they're like, Why did you, how did you get to the top? I got to the top. 
Nobody's going to stand in the kingdom of God because it's the kingdom of God and say, I got to the top. Listen, if that is what comes out of your mouth, that is the deepest root of all sin, and it'll be why you don't get in. And so you, you won't do it perfectly. You won't climb all the steps, but just imagine that you do. You'll get to the top, and that will be the very thing that condemns you because you did it in your own strength, and God has never called you to do it in your own strength. He's called you to do it, but he's called you to do it in his strength by relying on his strength. Like, you really do have to get there. But he gets you there. He's living in you, working in you. And so the same way, like, if you're like, hey, your, your shirt, it has to be perfectly clean to get into the kingdom. And so you go down to the creek, and you start scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing, and you're beating it on the rocks, and you do everything you can. And somebody else walks over to the laundromat and throws it in this heavy-duty washer. Right? It's got to be clean. You can try to make it clean yourself. Or you can trust the power of someone else to make it clean for you. Right? Or you got to be able to fly to the moon to get in the kingdom of God. Listen, I can jump off the stage and flap my arms as hard as I can. I'm never getting there. Or we can trust NASA or Elon or whoever to get us there, right? I mean, I know they're not perfect. This is lesser to greater, okay? This is the way Jesus teaches but you hop on their spaceship and their power gets you there way better than your power ever could. So I kept thinking through these, but none of those are exactly right. I was thinking, you've got you've to circumnavigate the world. Like You've got to get all the way around the, the oceans of the world. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, what we're tempted to do is to dive in and start swimming as hard as we can. And I don't, you may make it really, like somebody may look and be like, they swam 18 miles. Great. You're nowhere near making it around the world. Like, you can impress people with your religious discipline and your religious consistency, and it's nowhere close to the kingdom of God. But there's this huge cruise ship with a captain who knows exactly how to sail around the whole world and has everything you need. And he's inviting you to get on. He's offering to take you where you need to go. Like You will get there. Your heart will be changed. Your life will be changed. He will start changing your behavior. He'll make you more holy. He'll make you more like himself if you're depending on him, if you're connected to his power, if he's living in you. Like it really will happen, but it will be in his strength and his power. And so then what we all do in one way or the other, I don't want that. I want to do it myself. Like this is our rebellion against God. And so we get in our little paddle boat with our oars and we take off. And at some point the waves are too big. And they crush your tiny little boat. And the water's cold and your legs are numb and you're hanging onto a plank of wood and you're about to die. And all of a sudden swimming up, coming to find you, is this great strong man. And he has this rope. And you can't even see it. You don't know where he came from. You can't even see his boat. And it's sort of a Titanic moment where he's like, hey, this rope, he can pull you back, but only one of us can make it back. We'll be too heavy together. And if it pulls us both, we'll be under and we'll drown on the way back. And he's like, I'm going to hook this rope to you. And you trust. You trust that it'll get you back. And you look at him and you're like, but if you hook it to me and you stay here, won't you die? And he's like, yeah. I will. But I'll take your place and I'll die here and you get back on my ship. He's like, no, the, the, what we do then, no, I'll just, it's my fault, I'm here, I'll try to swim really hard. He's like, you can't make it. I'm telling you right now, you can't make it. You have to trust me. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying, you can't make it. I'm telling you right now, you can't make it. You have to trust me. And he gets to the end, and he's like, if you keep screaming out, Lord, Lord, I can make it. Didn't I do enough? Didn't I swim hard enough? He's like, no. You never trusted me. But if you'll get over that, and if you'll give yourself up, and if you'll listen to what I've said, and you'll put these words into practice, and you'll trust me the way that you should, if you'll see who I am, I'll get you back there. And so you grab hold of that rope, and they drag you back to the ship, and you get on. And you know that he's died for you. And it takes you three days to recover. 
and you get up on the third day and you walk to the front of the ship and that man that died for you is the captain of the ship and he's alive and he's there and he's taking you everywhere he promised to take you. That's what it's like to trust Jesus. That's what it's like to believe this gospel. And so absolutely, this is a warning. If you do this yourself, you'll drown. It is a warning, and it should break us of all the types of self-reliance and religious arrogance and pride that we would have. But listen, this is also hope and a gracious invitation of, I can get you there. It's when Jesus, when we, he, you know, he says that the, the gate is narrow and the way is small, and he turns around and John, he's like, I am the gate, I am the road, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He said, yeah, it's very, very small, but I am that way and I can get you there. And so part of Phil's question, and I, we're almost there, part of Phil's question was, yeah, so this is really, this is scary in a way, but what about for those of us who aren't prone to arrogance, like in this sense, like it's not, I think I'm good enough, I can make it. What about those who doubt their salvation and struggle with that? You know, and constantly come back. And this may sound like a weird answer, and I'm going to say it as gently as I can. The problem that people have when they're overconfident and self-righteous in themselves at its root is the same problem that we have when we doubt our salvation. Both groups are still looking at themselves. Right, this group's looking at themselves and saying, haven't I done? Lord, Lord, haven't I done this? Haven't I done this? Haven't I done this? Wasn't that good enough? And she's saying, no, it's not good enough, and you've got to quit looking at yourself, and you've got to look at me. And then when we doubt our salvation, we're looking and saying, what I've done isn't good enough. What, what if I'm one of these people? And Jesus is saying, stop looking at yourself and look at me. Yeah, if you look at yourself, you're going to have all kinds of doubts because you're not good enough. But I've been telling you that all along, and I love you anyway, and I came for you anyway, and I died for you anyway. Look at me. Look at me. I'm bigger than your doubts. I'm stronger than your doubts. I'm the answer for all of your doubts. And so I was just this week reading the Chronicles of Narnia. And you may think it's a children's book, and if it is, you need to go read them again. Even if you don't think it's a children's book, go read them again. And just know the lion is Jesus, and it will really help you. And so, if you don't know the story, there's four, two brothers, two sisters, four kids. One of them betrays his brothers and sisters and betrays the lion, who is the Jesus figure. And so you get to the end of the book, and the witch wants to kill him for being a traitor. You have a traitor there, Aslan, that's the name of the lion, said the witch. Of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund. He really was a traitor. Everybody knew it, and he knew it. What she said about him was true. But Edmund had got past thinking about himself after all he'd been through and after the talk he had had with Aslan that morning. So he just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter what the witch said. And then in here in a minute, Edmund felt a choking feeling and wondered if he ought to say something. But a moment later, he felt that he was not expected to do anything except to wait. And if you know the story, Aslan takes care of it. If you keep looking at yourself, you are either going to have an unhealthy pride where you think that you're enough, and it will keep you from trusting Jesus the way you should, or you're going to have an unhealthy despair where you wallow in the fact that you're not good enough, and these doubts will attack you over and over and over, and they will keep you from trusting Jesus the way you should. And the answer is to stop looking at yourself and see Jesus and just keep looking at Jesus. Look at what Jesus has done for you and know that it's enough. And look at what Jesus is doing in you now right? by the power of his word and the power of his spirit, the work that he's doing. And look at what Jesus promises to do in you and for you and through you forever. But look at Jesus, all of Jesus' work, and keep 
looking at Jesus. That's how you build your life on Jesus. That's how you put Jesus' words into practice. That's how you build your life on the foundation that is the rock because that foundation is Jesus. That rock is Jesus, and there is no other. And so it would be really, really like a sneaky and almost ironic mistake if we walked away from this sermon and we were like, I'm scared because of what Jesus said. I better try all the harder to get this right. (laughs) We walk away from the sermon and we say, I'm broken because of what Jesus said. I know I'm not enough. But all the more I need Jesus, all the more I trust Jesus, all the more I run to Jesus, all the more I believe what Jesus has done for me, and all the more every day I want to trust what Jesus is doing in me. I want to wake up today and I want him to be the source, him to be the power. I want to plug into him and not myself. I want to rely on him and not myself. And Tasha or Lisa, if you want to go get the kids and bring them in here so we can take the Lord's Supper with them. And so as we get ready to wrap up here, I want you to see in this, The gospel. See in this exactly what we're saying about Jesus. It is built in to everything that the Bible has ever taught us and everything we do when we're doing what he has said. This right here is a declaration of I was so sinful that the Son of God had to die for me. Like, of course I'm not going to be good enough. But also, the Son of God loves me in such a way that he died for me and he is good enough. He's made a promise to me. He took my place. His body was broken so that mine doesn't have to be. His blood was poured out so that mine doesn't have to be. He was separated from the Father in that moment when the wrath of God was poured out on the cross in a way that I could never imagine so that I never have to experience that for all eternity. That Jesus has done for me what I could never do for myself. And And the call of Christianity is to believe him, to trust him. As the kids are coming, this popped in my head, and so we'll just look at it real quickly. When when Jesus feeds the 5,000, I think I actually put this on the screen this morning. If I can get to it, it would be good for you to see it. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, I think it's the next day he's talking to them, and he kind of rebukes them because he's like, hey, everything you're interested in is still external. Like, it's exactly what we've been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. He's like, I want to do something internal. You're still focused on the external. He says, Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. That food tasted good. (laughs) I did this external thing, and it made you externally happy. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And so already they're hearing him saying, yeah, you've got to work for eternal food. And he says, how will you work for it? I'll give it to you. You can hear it in that verse already. But he goes on. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? All right, if we've got to work for this eternal food, what do we have to do? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Here's what you have to do. Believe in the one who does the work for you. Yeah, you've got to get to the top of that building. But Jesus is the elevator who takes you there. Yes, your clothes have to be perfectly clean. But Jesus is the greatest laundromat you've ever been to. Yes, you've got to sail around the whole world. But Jesus is the captain and Jesus is the cruise ship. And Jesus is the one who will rescue you and save you and carry you the whole way. And the work that God most deeply requires of you is to believe that he does the work for you. And that he does the work in you. And so those verses in the Sermon on the Mount that everybody's asked about, Lord, 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 they should scare us if we're trusting ourselves and not Jesus. And that's a gracious thing for us if he would shake us out of that and shock us out of that. But then when we turn from ourselves and turn to him, they comfort us. Because we know that in Jesus we can stand someday and say, Lord, Lord, didn't you? Didn't you die for me? Didn't you rescue me? Didn't you cleanse me? Didn't you give your spirit to me? And he's going to say, yes, I did. I know you. Come in. You're mine. I love you. I've chosen you from before the foundation of the world. Come and enjoy my kingdom. Let Jesus be the name that comes off your lips and not your own. Let Jesus work 
be the work that you celebrate and not your own. Let Jesus' work be the work that you trust and not your own. And so we take the Lord's Supper together right now in that way. Jesus said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. this cup is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins do this in remembrance of me I'm going to pray for us we're going to stand and sing and worship Jesus and we're going to invite you if you'd like to come and pray or talk to somebody about what God's doing in your life this is the time for that but we pray with me right now Father, thank you for this truth. Help us believe this truth. Lord, we believe. Help us overcome our unbelief. Stir up inside of us more and more faith in Jesus. Help us see who Jesus is. Do your work in our hearts by the truth of your word and by the power of your spirit as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.